basically all books about learning to program are always about learning to write code. Reading code, thinking about code, those are things we talk about way less. And then it is important that you understand how your, how your brain works. So if you often reason about code in this way, then it also gets easier. Um, but there are all sorts of things that you can do to try to make your brain more resilient against interruption. Hey everyone, welcome to the Bol.com Tech Lab podcast. We share our experience with you. Speaking behind the screens of IT and tech in general at Bol.com, the largest e-commerce platform in the Netherlands and Belgium. We are sharing our approach to IT, e-commerce and retail platforms. The hosts of the show, Peter Paul van der Beek and Peter Brouwers. Welcome. Yeah, every now and then, as you've been a regular listener to the podcast, we have uh, an author in the in the podcast. And today is uh, such an episode, such a day. We're really happy to uh, to have her in the in this uh, episode because I think it's an uh, intriguing uh, subject. Uh, Peter will tell you already a little more about it. Yeah, yeah. So the guest of our show, uh, yeah, she crossed our path uh, in a, in an unexpected way. In an early episode, we worked together with uh, with uh, an, a publisher, Manning Publishers. Uh, uh, it was in the episode "Love Your Logging." We talked with uh, with Phil Wilkins. Uh, we worked together with them, uh, and they reached out to us again uh, with the question: uh, "Well, we have a specific book, but it's not available in a, in the correct way on Bol.com. Can you help us out?" So we did. We uh, got uh, in contact with uh, with the correct persons in Bol.com. But we also saw that the book is really interesting for our podcast uh, ourselves. Uh, so. Uh, well, the book was uh, released in total in, in August of this year. And one of the reviews says, yeah, if you ever wondered what working smarter instead of harder is supposed to look like, you should re- read this book. Um, this this uh, person says, I'm already seeing improvements in my day-to-day work. So that's very uh, promising. Um, we are talking about the book, uh, The Programmer's Brain. And yeah, Peter Paul, let's introduce the guest of the show. Yeah, so the guest uh, of the show for today is uh, Philine Hermans. She's an associate uh, professor at Leiden University, head of the Programming Education Research Lab. Uh, and on Saturdays, she teaches uh, children programming, uh, like several of our colleagues do uh, in other uh, venues, uh, to put it like that. Um, yeah, she's organizer of the Curry on and uh, one of the founders, uh, the Joy of Coding conferences. Yeah, keynote speaker at a lot of conferences. Podcast podcast host at the Software Engineering Radio. Uh, we already have an impressive number of uh, episodes that we are for now dreaming of uh, to reach that <laughs> number. And of course, book uh, uh, author. Yeah, congratulations with all of this, and we're really happy to uh, to have you uh, in the episode. Thanks for Thanks. being here. Nice to be on the show. Welcome. Yeah, so um, when I uh, research the list and I, I think, from, okay, <laughs> how do you manage to, to pull this all off? And we should share some of that. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely question. Well, I think so. Lots of the things I do really interact with each other. So the book, for example, is based on a, partly on a course I teach at Leiden University. So I taught this course about how to interact with source code for a while at the university. And then I figured, hey, this is really an area that isn't just interesting for students, for computer science students. This is also interesting for professional programmers. So then part of my work at the university also flew into, streamed into the book. So it isn't, it, it sounds like all these different things, but it's all, for me, it's all very much related to each other. Cool. 
cool. So, that, so that's a secret that they kind of overlap the things that that you do, that, that, that you can borrow. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Hey, uh, the book that you uh, most recently uh, released uh, is basically structured in four parts. And we're going to try to keep that uh, st structure in the interview as well. Huh? It's about uh, reading code better, uh, thinking about code, writing better code, and collaborating uh, on code. Could you tell us a little on why you choose this structure? Yeah, I think these are the things we talk less about in programming than some other things. So typically, if we talk about programming and learning to program and learning new programming language, we very much talk about writing code. Right? We really have this culture in programming where we think if you want to get better at programming, you should do more programming. So it's very visible in all sorts of things that we say to each other, like, oh, you know, you should have an open source project on Saturday and it's almost December. So you have this advent of code in which people are going to write code as a means to get better. And basically all books about learning to program are always about learning to write code. So I figured that if we want to go into this space in which I found that there was not so much yet, then writing code is not what we should talk about because we talk about that enough. Yes, it's very important, but we talk about that all the time. Reading code, thinking about code, those are things we talk about way less. So I thought those would be the most important things to cover because this is where, where there's added value, where things aren't. Uh, already stressed out, uh, stressed so much in, in our teaching. If you look at the university curriculum uh, where I went to school, Eindhoven, um, I had like six programming courses, literally programming one, programming two, programming three. Well, I think actually we started at programming zero. Um, but so all these programming courses and they were all writing program, writing code, uh, like, oh, here's a little specification. Now you uh, reverse a linked list, right? Or search in the tree. This is the stuff we all practiced when we were in university or in boot camps. It's more or less the same. But I never had a code about uh, a course about reading code, about de debugging one, two, three, or code reading one, two, three, or choosing the right variable names one. So I figure that is the spot in which there's just not that much emphasis in in our curriculum. Interesting. So then the the things that you describe are also very oriented to how how to learn things. Is is that correct? Yes, yes, very much. How to how to acquire new skills, because I think that this is one of the most important things that con continuously, if you're a programmer, also if you're doing another profession, you are learning uh, new skills, new frameworks, new programming languages, new ways of doing things. And then it is important that you understand how, you, how your brain works, what happens in your brain if you process code, because then you will get better at, you know, figuring out what's, what's going wrong if you don't understand something. Exactly. So then, if you if you have an idea of how your brain works, you can better assess uh, what's what's the problem you're facing with uh, acquiring the knowledge that you need to solve the problem. Yes, exactly. Okay. Could you yes uh, uh, tell us in short how how the brain works and what we definitely need to know to to uh, yeah to pinpoint these problems for ourselves. Yeah, I think the most important thing that I explain in the book as well is that there are three parts of your brain that collaborate together if you process information, also if you process code. Um, and that is firstly your short-term memory. So this is a little bit like a buffer. You read information and then briefly it is stored in your short-term memory. And that briefly is actually really just a few seconds and also just a few elements fit in your short-term memory, really, really small. So if you're listening to my voice, then a few words ago, you've already forgotten because it doesn't really fit in your short-term memory. 
And the way we deal with that limitation is that your short-term memory collaborates with firstly your working memory. So your working memory, you can see that a bit as the processor of your brain. This is where your thinking happens. So the short-term memory is just remembering and then the working memory starts to process these, the sentences and the words I say, for example. And then the third part of your brain is your long-term memory, where all your memories are stored. And whenever information enters your working memory, your working memory sort of queries your long-term memory. Like, hey, long-term memory, what do we know about this topic already? And then your long-term memory gives your working memory context and information. So all the words that I'm saying, these words are stored in your long-term memory. You know what word means and what memory means and what stored means. So you can more easily process the information than I'm telling you because you already have prior knowledge. And that's important to know that if you look at code, that if you have lots of prior knowledge, if you are the creator of a certain library and you're onboarding a junior developer into your team, or even an expert developer in, that is expert in the programming language, but not in the domain that this code base is about, then you can very easily scan the code because you already have an idea of what's going on and you know what the variables mean. And you also know what all sorts of domain concepts mean. But for someone that comes in because they lack this long-term memory knowledge, they really process the code in a slower and different way because they lack this information. So that is really, well, clearly my book explains this in a lot more detail, uh, but this is the basic information that I talk about in, in the first part of the book. Okay. Um, hey, can, can, we, can we then also state very roughly that a more experienced programmer just has more references in his long-term memory to recognize, uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, parts of the syntax, uh, patterns, uh, all kinds of these things from, so it's easier and faster to understand for her. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so something like design patterns, I talk about this in the book as well. If you're an experienced programmer and you look at a piece of code and you're like, oh, this is a decorator pattern. And you don't have to understand all the small details because at once you see, oh, a decorator pattern. And then you can remember this and you can reason about it like, oh, why would you use a decorator pattern? Why not something else? Whereas if you don't know this pattern, then you just see, oh, hmm, oh, something is being assigned to something else. And then you have to understand all the little details. And then you might get lost in the little details. And this expert programmer is already telling you like, oh, I wasn't sure if the decorator pattern was a good choice here. But then in the code, it doesn't say decorator pattern maybe, right? So this new programmer is like, uh, what is he referring to? I don't understand what is being talked about even. So you're very right. Sometimes you can get these really confusing discussions because an expert programmer immediately recognizes parts of short code that for the beginner aren't visible, aren't like grabbable. You can't grab onto them to start reasoning. What I what I really liked in, uh, about this first part in the book is that you also uh, give some, uh, it's a lot of background information that you share based on, on uh, uh, different scientific uh, um, uh, items like for instance uh, with what you now described is covered with an, an, an experiment with chess players and you have the, the expert uh, ch chess player and the, the more intermediate um, and, and you see they're the same happening and eh? that uh, the expert knows the different uh, openings and recognize and uh, they have to remember a specific setup on the on the chessboard uh, it's it's uh, covered after that, and they have to uh, reproduce the the setup. And uh, the expert will uh, will uh, put a lot of uh, items on the correct place, as where the average player is not able to do that because he's 
uh, well, remembering A2 and then B2, and then yeah. it stops because that's the, how the, the short-term memory works. And uh, the expert remembers, okay, you have the, the Sicilian opening, plus, uh, uh, well, this, this and this item is moved two places, and, and that's only the, the only thing he has to remember. Um, so the, that's what I like about the book, but it also made me realize, and when, when you talk about the difference in expert and um, more intermediate people, that uh, if you translate it into, into our working, we're working the, what we do when we try to validate uh, the, the level of uh, uh, software engineers, for instance, during the hiring process, we look at how they code, how they write the code again. But yeah. this is about reading and remembering and, and knowing the patterns. So should we mo more focus on, on that item as well in the hiring process? Well, as you, you, you refer to the, the PZ thesis of Adrian de Groot that indeed looked at the more expert you are as a chess player, the more easy it is to remember chessboards. So, and actually what I also describe in the book, this experiment has been replicated with source code and exactly yeah. the same thing holds for source code. So people worried like, oh, but if it holds for chess, will it hold for code? This has also been tried with code, even though it was on the Fortran code a while ago. Um, but we know the same pattern holds. So a very good way actually to assess how expert a certain programmer is in a certain programming language is you give them a piece of code, you let them study it for five minutes, you cover it up and you have them reproduce the code. And more the more expert someone is, the better they will be able to reproduce the code because as I said with the design pattern, they can uh, reproduce bigger chunks of code. So in, in Python, I look at the for loop, I don't remember for i in range because I just think, oh, for loop. But in a programming language I, I'm less familiar with, uh, Rust or Swift or something, then I don't immediately see where the for loop is because it looks different. It's maybe it is for each and it has an arrow or something. So then it takes me more energy to figure out what's there. So this would be a, quite a, a cheap and easy way to, to measure, to gain an understanding of the, the experience level of programmers. Yeah. But in a specific language, that's, that's an uh, addition to that. Yeah. Yes, and also domain. So the more you, the, 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 there's an interaction here between domain and uh, programming language as well. The more you know about the domain, also the easier it gets. So if I look at, parsing, uh, at Python code that parses something, I, I'm working on a programming language in Python. So then it gets really easy for me because I immediately recognize, oh, this is a parse tree and this is tree traversal and this is rewriting and transpiling. But if I would have to look at Python code for a domain, I'm not really familiar with, I don't know something in banking, then that too will add to my cognitive load to, to, to how hard it is for me to process something. So it's very much an interaction of the programming language and the domain. But you could do a bunch of code snippets in different domains in one programming language. That should still give you a, quite a good idea. I already saw you making some notes, Peter Paul. So was that uh, to, uh, to make this work? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting uh, because, yeah, I think that First, as engineering managers, this hiring process is, is quite an important part of our, of our job. So, uh, it is. And the, the other one on, on that part that, that struck me in, in your example, Fillion, was that um, you also mentioned that the experienced programmer sees the pattern uh, and also uh, starts thinking about why is this used and is it properly used in this context instead of reading all the details and, and checking, oh, this is this. So then, then my brain goes from, hey, put whether someone is is very easy discussing on, is this the right context 
for this and very easy discussing why is something used? Is that also a, a predictor? Yeah, so now we're slowly going towards the second part of the book, I think, this thinking about code. So indeed, the, the more knowledge you have, the more easy it is to reason about certain things. But this is also, again, a matter of practice. So if you often reason about code in this way, then it also gets easier. And, and also, of course, like reasoning about code, asking such questions, you can also ask these questions without really understand code, right? It's easy. I sometimes do this when I supervise students without really understanding what they've done, asking, oh, so what have you done here? So what was the most difficult part, right? So to, to get them talking about what they've done without really me having a deep understanding of their um, of, of their process and the, the stuff that they struggled with over the, the week or so yes, it is true that more experts will be more easily able to reason about things, but this reasoning, if you have much experience, you can also reason about codes and about decisions without actually talking about the code. Yeah, but and then at the same time, have asking why did you apply this? Then you have to be able to reason about it and not, not just asking the question. Eh? And then uh, what I always find intriguing, if people also can mention why it's actually not such a good idea, their own way of doing stuff, then they kind of are, are on, on, then they really understand the pros and cons for me. Is it something you recognize or? Yeah, a bit, but also there. Um, so you can also have an understanding of different trade-offs without really understanding them, right? So this ah, is something okay. you could also yeah. memorize. Yeah, you could say, well, uh, maybe, you could bullshit your way through it. You could say, oh, you know, maybe this solution is elegant and not very efficient. That's something you could say that sort of always fits. Um, yeah, it does. So <laughs> I, I, if you really want to understand, then you probably have to have really some good follow-up questions. And then, of course, you, you yourself also have to have a deep understanding of the trails, which isn't so easy. Exactly, because then you would typically ask, okay, what's elegant at least in your view or something? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> then you do have to dive deeper. Yeah, to dive deeper, of course. Yeah. Hey, there are two items in this first part of the book uh, that are also very interesting to discuss about because it's it's uh, something we we discuss uh, about many many times. And the, the the first item is uh, why should I learn all this stuff? You can just look things up. Um, you you have a nice uh, uh, analysis about that one. Why why isn't it always good to uh, to look things up? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's one reason, and this is also research that I cite in the book, is that if you leave code, for example, to Google, eh, to go to Google, then it will take you considerable time to get back to work. So 10, 15, 20 minutes to get back to your mental state. And I think we all recognize this, that if you're coding and you have to do something else, whatever it is, this takes away your flow state, so to say. And then, of course, that's even in the most happy scenario where you go to Google, you immediately find your answer and you go back. But then you go to Google. That never maybe this, <laughs> maybe this is just me. And you go to Google. Oh, you also open Twitter. Oh, let's check some dots. Or you have to search a while. Go on Stack Overflow. Oh, this is not the right answer. Oh, this is about something entirely different. Oh, here's a very lengthy blog post that might have the end. Oh, it doesn't have the end. So we all know that this process of just looking it up, it is almost never just looking it up. So that's the first reason that it can be more expensive than we think. And the other reason is that Basically, what we just talked about, the more you know, the more easy it is to process things. You can imagine that uh, we are all Dutch. Imagine that someone that isn't Dutch has to read something we wrote in Dutch. You could say, well, you know, there's Google Translate. Translate. You can just yeah. throw all the stuff there. And, and 
for every word, you just look it up or every sentence, but you, you can all figure out that A, that's not very efficient, and B, this person will not be able to reason about that text because the translation will never be perfect and it takes lots of energy and you have to do all sorts of double checking. So if you want someone to really reason, like read an essay that we wrote, really reason about something, then sure, it's fine if they have to look up one or two words, but looking up everything really is too slow and will never get you at that level where you can do proper reasoning. So those are all reasons that a little bit of syntax knowledge really goes a long way because it will help you process code so much better. And that's not, of course, uh, only uh, do I put a semicolon here or do I put a quotation mark there, but also these patterns. And so in, in Python, an example I give in the, in the book is list comprehensions. That's a very Pythonic way of creating a list. Um, that's not only syntactically that you have to know what it does, but also this is a pattern you have to be able to recognize quickly. And if you really have this nice vocabulary of all these syntactic and semantical concepts, you will be so much more effective at producing code and then you don't have to uh, leave your environment. And this is also, it's really a programming specific thing that we say, oh, you know, you can just look up things. This, this isn't something in other professions, in most other professions, we say, well, it's really important that you have this good knowledge base uh, because that will make you more flexible and, and, and just able to reason at a higher level. Yeah, and it also gave me the answer that um, I have recognized it myself. For some items, I always have to look the same thing up again. And, and that's what I do. But you explain in your book why you why why that never sticks in your memory because it's a difference with with your uh, yeah storage and retrieval strength, right? Yes, for sure. That's a third reason that looking up is not very effective um, because actually trying to remember something strengthens your memory of that thing. Um, not necessarily strengthens the memory, but makes it easier to look it up the next time. It's really very much like a muscle that you train. So if there's something that you always forget. If you look it up, then your brain is like, oh, no, I don't have to remember this. You're not exercising this muscle. Whereas if you would then say, oh, I forget this every time. Let me really think what, what this is or, or write it down and then uh, practice it a bunch of times. Yeah, then, then you make this retrieval strength stronger. And at one point, um, you don't have to look this up anymore. It's a bit like learning letters, right? Initially, if you're, if you're a six-year-old and you're really like, you know, every letter takes effort, but then... You can get to this level where effortlessly you can simply read very long sentences because you just practiced a lot. That's how it works. Yeah. But Paul, before we jump to the to my second item, you have questions left for this. No, one? go go ahead. Or maybe yeah. tips and tricks how you want to uh, to learn these patterns. But there was there was a, there was one item I recognized for my uh, my daughter is learning some second language in in. Uh, Mm -hmm. school. So she, she, she's, she's doing this work with the flashcards and that's what I uh, saw in your book uh, back as well to use uh, for yeah, learning the, the code stuff. So that's one, uh, one good tip uh, from the book, I, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Hey, one, the, the other item uh, was about documentation. Uh, many people say documentation is in the code, so it should be, it should be uh, readable and then it, it should be clear for everybody. And that's also what something you touch upon in this uh, in this uh, uh, chapter. What can you say about that one? Yeah, so this this document the, the code is the documentation is also a little bit like a, a trope we tell each other. Uh, but of course, there are many things that that cannot go in the documentation, like the reason that you did something. 
That's something I very consciously put in code. And the reason that we do this in such a way is efficiency, readability. Um, Why is that, that important? That will never really. Um, so this is important because that will help someone create the right mental model. So this is what we talk about in the book as well. A mental model is like a mental representation of the code in, in your brain. Um, and if you say, oh, we organize our data structure as a tree because this makes searching easier or because this is used for pretty printing or whatever, then the person thinks, oh, I understand why this code is a certain way. And then that's something they don't have to then think about or worry about. And this will never really be visible from the code alone. Like in the code that you can see, oh, this is tree traversal, but it will never be clear why someone chose a certain way. And also, of course, this um, prevents uh, friendly rewriting where someone comes into your code base is like, oh, I see this is a tree. I don't think this is efficient. Let's make this into a hash map. And then, you know, they will figure out why that wasn't a good choice. This has already been considered. So it also helps to keep your code base in a more stable way and to make sure that these design decisions are really very visible. So that's definitely an argument in favor of having documentation. And this can be in live in the code as a comment or can live in a, in a markdown file in your repo. It doesn't really matter where it lives. But that's specific documentation for which it doesn't hold that, oh, this is just visible from the code. Another reason we talk about that in the book as well is that we know that comments actually help. So comments help people figure out what code is about. If you look at eye tracking studies, then you see that people's attention is drawn to um, to code comments and that they can serve as beacons and beacons are something that help people understand code. So we, we know they really work well. So it's, yeah, I don't, I've, I've, so for some things, I understand why people have objections, but for proper comments and documentation, I really don't understand why people object to this, apart from the fact that writing code is more fun than writing documentation in a sense. But that also, again, goes what we talked about earlier. We have this culture of you know code writing. Writing is fun and we like coding and we hate all the other things that we have to do. So I guess it's sort of in the same vein. Uh, but I actually like writing design documents. I'm writing down what decisions I've made. I, I, I don't see why people would prefer writing code over making it clear what your decisions are. Not just for other people, also like for your future self. Especially that one as well, indeed, your future <laughs> self. You, 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 just when you wrote the code, you, you, it's still clear for you why you took the decision. But if you have to pick it up uh, six months later, you have to read yeah. it again, right? Yeah. Yeah, and also making decisions is really hard uh, and it's not something that you want to do while coding. So I've in, in the open source repo that I that I manage, I've made a list of design guidelines. It's like, this is the way we design stuff. And it's really useful as a conversation with yourself as well. Like I put in my own design guidelines. If you have the choice, it's better to solve stuff in the grammar and not in the transpiler. And this is like really like a letter to myself. And then now I'm implementing something. I'm like, hmm, what do I do? And it's like, wait a minute, I thought about this. I don't have to think about this now while implementing because I've already made this decision and we made the decision that we would put stuff in the grammar. So then it just gets easier to implement something. So if you write down somewhere, you know, this is the five design patterns or the five design guidelines that we always tend to follow. And you have a good discussion of, the, of uh, about that with your team. Like I'm a benevolent dictator of my programming language, so it's really easy to make decisions. But if you work in a team, then uh, then of course you want to uh, you want to make sure everyone agrees with them. But then you document this. You said this is the way we do stuff. You're you're 
you're preventing so much time spending on how do we do this if you if you make that clear that's that's super helpful for your brain and your brain doesn't have to think about that you can just think about how to implement this in, in your point of view eh, could this have something to do that a lot of the of the modeling techniques that we have in it are uh, aimed at showing the result that we have uh, that we have that that we got to and not at uh, showing the decisions that we made along the way getting to that result because yes. a lot of the documents i've read are stating what the result was but no the requirements and the result but it's very hard to show something of on the path that you've taken to get from requirements to results and in the end making decisions is about left right straight on this and this that that's in the path that's yeah, I think that's a really good observation that you make there. I think lots of the lots of the documentation that we've been trained to write is actually meant for end users or for managers, for people outside our team. Um, because I guess it also again comes back to well, within the team we communicate in code, right? We don't need documentation and design decisions because we have the the code is the truth. Um, but I do think indeed it isn't always efficient. And so as I so I'm sort of repeating myself, but. Some stuff you cannot put in code, like what, why is this there? Or what are the trade-offs? Uh, what are the alternatives that I considered and, and decided not to implement and for what reasons? And, and this can also be technical debt, right? I mean, sometimes <laughs> I was just having a, <laughs> having a call this morning with a, a programmer that's going to work on, uh, on my open source project. And she's like, why is there all this duplication? Is this for a reason? I'm like, no, it's not true for a reason. It just happened because first we had one type of exception and now we have seven and now we have all these if, if aliefs. Uh, but it's a great question. It's like, why is this there? Sometimes there might be a reason to do something. And sometimes it's just like technical depth. We, we never envisioned to be so there to be so many times. And that's that stuff we just don't. It can never live in code itself. Exactly. Processing yeah, going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm, <laughs> I, I can recall that, that I, I, while, while writing some test cases for uh, while we had to do time traveling because of things uh, on our web shop don't work the same on a Sunday or on a Saturday or on a Monday. At least ah. it was like seven or eight years ago. So you, if you check for, you have to check for what day of the week it is to also allow for certain test cases. And you can easy either write that out for every day specific for the day number of the week, or you can come up with a complex formula for that. And both will work, right? Yes. And the number of times that they argument, yeah, but you should go for that complex uh, formula because that's that's the complete almost mathematical description of what there is. Well, for me, it was way easier to understand the per day thingy because then it was very easy to relate them to the requirements and everybody could see what's what was happening, but just going once over the code and that. But this this reminds me <laughs> the, the discussion yeah. we now having reminds me of that uh, part. Yeah, that's very true. And there's so many reasons why having it in um, in these seven different cases in the in the week makes sense. Also, because then you have a place to write down what is different on the Saturday and the Sunday, right? If you have these seven different options and you can write down, well, on Sunday we cannot promise uh, same day delivery or something like that. Whereas in the formula, everything is shorter. And this also goes to what I talk about in the book about code smells. Um, we've really been training ourselves as a field to say shorter is better. Um, 
And this, what you're arguing, is a clear case where shorter is necessarily better in terms of readability. Um, but this is, yeah, we've all adopted, we all believe, and I mean, I love code smells, and it's a really good framework to think of uh, how to organize code. But there is a certain philosophy underneath that isn't always visible is that what we aim for is maintainability in the sense of oh if if changes are made the changes only have to be made in one place that's the underlying philosophy that's what we're optimizing for so we're optimizing again for code writing basically we're optimizing for future code writing um, and duplication we, we did a lovely experiment with kids in which we found that duplicated code is harder to maintain but it's easier to understand because information is in different places and it's easy, vis visible and findable. So duplication might support understandability. If So if you're optimizing for readability, but not necessarily for maintainability, then maybe a bit of duplication isn't so bad. So because we've all adopted code smells without really um, describing and understanding the cognitive principles behind code smells, we sometimes lean, as you're, I love your example, I'm totally going to steal your example we lean towards this oh we can put this in one place so we should and the underlying belief is that this will make future changes easier uh, and maybe those future changes never happen and then everyone has to be onboarded in the code base we know you know many software companies have lots of churn so onboarding is definitely something you want to optimize for um, all those people have to struggle with that complex formula and maybe this code never changes so that's really like a lot of wasted effort. It's a nice bridge to uh, from reading code to uh, maybe thinking about code and writing code. code. Um, we already started a bit on thinking about code. Um, what what are the highlights for uh, for you, Pauline, uh, in, in, uh, if you start thinking about code? Yes, so definitely mental models. Um, that's something we talk in the book extensively. And mental model is just what you use to think about code. And again, these seven days of the week is a really nice example for mental models because we have a mental model of what a week is and that there are different days and they have all, all have a name. So if something with days comes up, then you look at that and you can easily visualize this. Maybe if you think of week, you visualize it as a calendar with columns because this is how my calendar looks like. So if you think about something like that, you immediately have a model to think with. And that's the, the nice thing. And this, there are many mental models like trees or lists or things that exist in reality like a calendar. And the, the risk of mental models, because it's not only happy news, the risk is also that with mental models come misconceptions. So ways in which you misunderstand both. And this, again, if you think of a week, if I think of my calendar, my calendar starts on Monday. So if I look at code that reasons about a week and I see something that is weekday zero, I will assume this is Monday because that's my mental model of a week. But I know in some other cultures, this might be Saturday or, or Sunday. That is the first yeah. day of the week. Uh, so maybe this assumption is wrong, but it will definitely be the first thing that I think about. So mental models can be really helpful in reasoning about code, especially if you can connect code to things that already exist in the, in the outside world that you have a really strong view on or a strong way of thinking, but they can also lead to, to misunderstandings because if I assume that the first day is Monday and I don't check this assumption, then I might make very confusing mistakes. Exactly. And of course, and there's also still the risk that the mental model that you use to reason about the code isn't necessarily the same mental model as I would be using. Um, yeah. And then the other accident happens. 
Yeah, yeah, this is true. Yes. Or sometimes your your mental model changes, which also can happen in code, where first you think it is this, and then your own thinking is refined while programming, and then you slightly uh, sort of drift off to a slightly different mental model, and then maybe initially they're different but consistent with each other, and then of course differences uh, differences happen. So thinking about code is is is. Uh, connecting to your mental model, um, wh what's more in this area? Uh, so also in this area is practicing problem solving, um, because very often also, again, when we're talking about writing codes, um, very often we think that if you solve a problem once, then you also learn the strategy. But this isn't necessarily always true because sometimes you're so so busy with implementing something that you sort of forgot what the strategy is, right? Sometimes if you write something very difficult, then three weeks later you go back to your own code and you're like, I remember nothing. And that's more likely to happen with very complicated code because your brain is so full with figuring out how to implement something that your storage to long-term memory module, so to say, is just overheated and there's no more space to actually store something. Um, so in that situation, you might not learn something in the sense of problem solving because you're just so engaged with the code. So if you want to uh, learn problem solving better, a better strategy actually is to look at code that already exists, your own code or other people's code doesn't really matter, and to try to figure out, hey, what are problem solving techniques that are used here? So if you lower your load, if you lower your like your mental um, busyness of your brain, it's more likely that your long-term memory will be like, oh, this is useful. So reading a blog post about how someone has solved a problem might be a much uh, more um, effective strategy to actually learn about the solution than re-implementing the solution yourself. So if you want to get that, and this is also well documented in the book with examples of research. And um, if you want to learn about certain problem-solving strategies, a better strategy is to study problem-solving strategies from other people than to do it yourself because then your brain is just going to be caught up with syntax and data types that you're not really thinking about what's my strategy here. Yeah, so learn from others so you have extra brain power left to, to really understand what the problem is about and not uh, exactly. uh, throw yes. it away with the other stuff. Uh, uh, yes. Spend it with the other stuff, right. Uh, I can see a lot of <laughs> processing happening with yeah, me and with the power as well in, the, in this talk. Yeah, so it's because really, it's really interesting. <laughs> it's a really interesting topic yeah, because also sometimes <laughs> you have like that uh, success eh, and also the success of solving problems that sticks with us and that's really gets really ingrained into our brain. So then it's very easily to if you solved a similar problem once to to just start using the same thing again, the same approach to, to the solution. And yeah, this, so the, the, the things that we're discussing also, yeah, sparks me to look into that. Okay. But that could not be the best approach. Yeah. But why not take a step back and ponder about your approach? Because it might look like the same problem, depending on the mental model that you choose, but it might actually not be the best. Uh, approach yeah. maybe maybe there are just too many assumptions there and i think that, that yeah and this is also your long-term memory I, I sometimes describe your long-term memory as like this angel on your shoulder indeed if you once you know once you solved something with hash map then your long-term memory will be like hey i know what you should use you should use hash map because this was a successful in the past or a tree traversal or whatever or map reduce um but indeed it might not be the best 
thing in this particular context. And this is this. And sometimes your long-term memory can work against you. Like if you're assuming a week starts on a certain day, but also if you're assuming that a certain strategy will be good. And, and this especially happens, we talk about that in the book as well, between programming languages. So if you are a C-sharp programmer and you then make the transfer to Python, then not only is the syntax bothering you, but also the way of doing things is weird. Like also this morning I was chatting with my colleague and we have this in uh, exception handling in Python where we just we read the arguments of the exception and based on that we do a case uh, statement. Um, she's like, well, we could also use inheritance on the exceptions. And I was like, yes, yes, but that is not really the Pythonic way to do something, right? That's more a Java C-sharp way. So there's nothing wrong with it and it would certainly work. And maybe you could argue that it's more elegant but in certain contexts, like programming languages or sometimes teams, um, we do you always use the same solutions because we're used to that. And then at one point, like it does get better because it's a thing everyone uses. Yeah, but, but, but then it's, it's good almost on itself because everyone uses them. So yes, everyone yeah, who's sure. already in the team uh, knows how to use it and, and knows that that's done in the, that case. Uh, only the, the hard part then is... Uh, getting them, getting this knowledge to the people onboarding in the team. Eh? Yes. And then, yes. And then we I have this lovely, uh, I have this lovely anecdote in the book where there were people that wrote an algorithm to make code more systematic. So this is a tool called Naturalize, and it looks at a code base, and then if if you are um, diverging from a pattern then it says, hey, this is different than the rest of the code base. And then it can automatically suggest pull requests. So this tool suggested a pull request to a code base. And then the maintainer said, no, but this is not the way we do it. Look in our guidelines. It says you should do it such and such. And then the tool was like, well, we actually read your code base. <laughs> and more often than not, you don't follow your own <laughs> guidelines. So guidelines. if we look with an, if we, with an algorithm, we look at what is more natural in your code base, then your own guideline is not more natural because no one uses it. So you're very right that sometimes people pick something up and it might not be what you want, but it's definitely what will happen. And that brings us also to collaborating eh? and, and, and how, how, how that works uh, on code and how the way certain things are done in a, in a code base or approaches that are chosen yeah, can be very natural to the people in the team. Uh, yeah. But people uh, uh, yeah, having to work as well in that code base, it, it, nah, <laughs> feel very unnatural to them. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Yes. What what should we know more about collaborating on code? So the last subject of your of your book. Yeah. So at least something that I talk about that you know people always are worried about is interruptions. So we we know interruptions are bad, but we talk about that in the book in, in quite some detail of why interruptions are bad and and what could be done about them. And this also has to do with the mental model. And I think this is very recognizable for everyone in the audience that is a programmer. You're programming and you have this mental model in your brain. And you're like, oh, I have a plan for this feature. But this mental model only and this plan only lives in your brain. And then someone comes in like physically or virtually on Slack, like, hey, do you have a minute? 
and and you you feel it crumble in your brain like the house of cards in your brain is like falling to the ground and all flat and you're like no and 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 you can't you can't like get it back right so this is very recognizable um so that's something that we talk about in the book what are strategies that you can use what what can you do because these interruptions we cannot prevent them because yeah you know you have to be a team player sometimes someone needs help um but there are all sorts of things that you can do to try to make your brain more resilient against interruptions and one of the techniques that we talk about is called sub-goal labeling, where we say, okay, so I have my plan, and these are the five things that my plan consists of. And you can write them down, well, on a sheet of paper, or maybe in the comments, you just write step one, step two, step three, step four, and then you implement them. So you first write down the steps, and then you implement them. Um, that makes it easier to deal with an interruption because then you have your plan it is right there in the code and if someone interrupts then you can read oh what what was my plan like this internal conversation that we all often have with each other like oh shit what was i doing here and then you can you can read your plan so that's just one of the things that you can do and this is also um i think a lot of my book is also about as a team adopting a certain vocabulary so if you all agree, if you all know that an interruption causes a mental model that you have internally to decay, it's also something you can then use in communication with each other. So someone comes in and you can say, wait, one second, I need to like write down my mental model because otherwise I have forgotten it. And, and if everyone in the team sort of is aware of these things, then that will be helpful. So that's... Um, of course, if you can prevent interruptions, like if you can say, well, afternoons is programming and no one is allowed to disturb me. If that's possible in your organization, I'm very envious of where you work. Let me know where you work. Maybe I'll join you. But in many cases, that will not be possible. Right? We all understand that that's just simply not possible. So then what is possible is to make yourself, yourself a bit more resilient to these interruptions. And that's also something you have control of. Whereas interruptions, yeah. You can glue your draw shot, but people will still send you messages on Slack. It's just very hard to um, to, to like um, detract yourself from that. I'm really interested. Eh? So, so one of these things is, is it these these uh, like let's say these these steps that you have to take to to complete the task. Uh, and in my experience, well, especially while during interviews, talking about coding or solving problems, I, I, I tend to have like a question that they ask: How do you solve a bug? Could you lead me to the process? And if you ask that, ask that to a lot of programmers, which I've done, I've, I've asked it like over 80 times this year already, then the, 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 how they come to a, to a plan or a structure that it's, it's really interesting to, to follow or how, how hard it sometimes is to define uh, the steps in such a program, uh, in such a process. Uh, <laughs> is there some of your studies that, that could, Help me explain why this is so hard. Yeah, so I, I guess, uh, yeah, you know, I'm really repeating myself, but I guess it's the same thing as all the other things. Like we don't really practice this so much. We mainly practice writing code. In university, I also, though sometimes increasingly, but not always, I don't ask students to write down their plan. And then I check the plan and then they do the solutions. I sometimes do this, uh, but typically we have students submit code straight away. And if you're supervising juniors, then maybe also you don't ask them, you know, first draft a plan first in the issue underneath the issue. Uh, write down what your strategy is and we'll talk about the strategy and then you implement something. So I don't think it's. Like problem solving is hard, but programming is also hard. So I don't think making such a plan is necessarily 
harder than programming, but it's just not something we practice commonly. Our, 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 lots of our industry and the stuff we value is, is about how, to, how quickly you can solve the bug and not how, how great your strategy is. And in many places, they do mainly acceptance testing, right? Mainly you, you have a pull request, so you mainly do acceptance testing. Like, oh, this works. I can confirm the bug is fixed. Um, and then we all know these lovely stories, like if you have a, a pull request that is five lines, then lots, lots of remarks about the five lines. But if it's a pull request that's 200 lines, are you really going to evaluate the strategy? Are you actually going to? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you have to say on the podcast, yes, at Bob.com, we definitely do this. Of course you do, but some other people, um, you know, you're not going to read all the lines of code. You're just going to run the tests. You're going to see, is the bug fixed? Does this implement a new feature? And you're like, ah, oh, this is good. So we don't have this culture where we talk about these problem solving strategies and we specifically evaluate them. So yeah, that's uh, I think the answer is of course part part of it is hard, but also part is that we just don't typically talk about uh, solutions and strategies at that level. And this is also yeah, as all the things in the book, uh, something you can practice if you if you if you train yourself in in doing the sub goals or, or using other techniques. We have other techniques as well, like drawing diagrams and making all sorts of tables. Uh, if you train yourself in those techniques, as everything, it will get easier. Hey, that, that's. Uh... Already a lot of uh, items we touch upon about, about <laughs> the book. There, there's way more, including uh, real nice exercises as well in the book. So it's really uh, advisable to have a look at, uh, at the book as well. Um, but I was, it's, uh, I was wondering, and uh, and you already touched upon a bit uh, when you talked about uh, you're working in Python and somebody else jumping in uh, with C sharp or Java and more Java experience. Then you you had this strange conversation on uh, what pattern should we use or not. It's today. It's International uh, Diversity Day. I, I think at the moment, the moment we record this, when we talk about all this and we talk about diversity, uh, internationals, uh, men, women, uh, or whatever, is is what what would should we take into account in that aspect, or is it just all the same? And is that no? It's it's definitely it's definitely different. So so people are different, and it's good that we have diversity day. And I also think it's good we have diversity in teams. But it is true that people from a diverse background, and this might mean they grew up in a different country or they grew up uh, quote unquote in different programming language, um, that they might value different things. As some cultures might value communication over um, over solutions more. Some people might have different. Uh, Dutch are known to be very direct. Some people might have different conflict res resolution strategies. Uh, whereas we we would be totally okay with saying to each other your code is shit, and people from other cultures might not be so happy if you say something like this. Where where we're like, oh, that's just this directness. Um, so so all these differences, yeah, they definitely also manifest. They manifest in any teamwork, but they also manifest in programming. And then we have this special extra thing where, um, <laughs> like one of my friends always says, you can write Java in any language. Where we have this culture, as in the culture of your country or your uh, culture where you're coming from, but also the culture of the programming language you you uh, are are used to, and that also comes with its own idiom and its own also ways of doing things like. If you look at the way people chat, communicate with each other, then um, a subculture like C or C++ might also um, have different ways of talking to each other than more modern programming languages like, I don't know, Java or Rust. Like Rust has this specific design guideline where they say, well, we're really friendly and supportive. If you look at some other maybe older open source projects, 
friendly and supportive isn't the way you would describe, I don't know, the Linux kernel mailing list. So these cultures, like in programming, there's this very interesting interaction between personality and, and uh, international culture and programming language culture. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting, but hard. So actually you could say that's that's an extra layer around all this that, that goes with, yeah. with this diversity items. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, Peter Paul and I are both <laughs> processing again, but it's uh, I'm also having a look at, uh, at the time. So Peter Paul, uh, yeah, it's 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 that time already. Um, so the famous question towards you, Peter Paul, do you have questions left before we go to the closing round? Yeah, so many questions <laughs> left. So, uh, but I mean, but what I was thinking, so Peter and I both both are are engineering managers, so we're supposed to help. Uh, yeah, software engineers to grow and develop themselves. So should the most important takeaway for us be to have more focus on how people learn and on reading code instead of asking them to, I don't know, write code, uh, learn a new framework or things like that, or what would you advise us to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe I should write like a, a whole other book on what what this means for hiring. Uh, maybe we should do it after. For engineering managers. For <laughs> yeah. engineering managers. I feel a new book um, coming up. Yeah, but I, I, I yeah, so I think um, we, we as a field in, in, in oh, yes, that would be lovely. We as a field in all sorts of parts of programming, we should emphasize code reading and, and, and readability more. Not that it's more important than writing code, but writing code, as I said, it has already gotten all the attention for the past. So one of the things I'm doing, actually I'm doing literally today, is I'm hosting a code reading club. So many companies, like driven by, by my book and my ideas, are also starting these code reading clubs in which collaboratively as a group, you take a piece of code, it can be open source, it can be from your own repo, and you just read it together as a team. And I found people that are doing it have found that it is such a valuable way to learn from each other, to learn more about the practice of reading code, but also um, to gain an understanding that this is still like very, very hard. So these code clubs, sometimes they happen in companies, but we also every month, if people are interesting, we can put a link to the code clubs in the show notes. Um, every month we host an open code reading club in which random people on the internet come join our Zoom meeting and we take a piece of code and we read it together. And that is really something that is so valuable for learning. And not just because I explain how I read something and people learn from my strategies and the other way around, but it's also very um leveling and very good for beginners to see that me as an expert in a way about code reading if you give me a random piece of code i don't immediately know everything even if it's in a programming language i know really well so i vocalize my confusion as well i like i read this code aloud i'm like well i see a function is declared here but i really don't know what it's doing yet let me take you through what i would use and beginners are like oh that's that's great yeah, because it isn't something that it will always be hard. So if you would do such an exercise with, with juniors that you're trying to train and they would see you experts that they look up to still also struggle with code, maybe even with code that you wrote yourself like three months ago, then this also creates a culture in which we all understand that this is hard and this will always remain hard. Um, so I found that that is in, in so many ways, doing this exercise in which you take a piece of code and you read it together, is a very, very valuable way. And even sort of a team building way that might work better as team building than going, I don't know, paintballing or laser gaming or something, because it really also creates the same 
the same experience in a team that is not it's not really like work because you're not really producing something, but it is creating an experience. And and also then you have this, we talked about these problem solving techniques. If you're studying code later on, you could say, oh, maybe we can do this like the one we wrote that we read that one day, uh, where they also use that. So you also um, build a vocabulary of code snippets that everyone knows, including then also problem solving techniques that everyone knows. So you should totally start a code reading club. And we have free resources. If you want to start one, we have a website with free resources, with exercises, and then like an agenda you can use for your first club. So you should totally try it out. Sounds like a cool plan. And I never heard about it in, in Bold.com. So we uh, definitely have something to discuss, uh, Peter Paul. Cool. <laughs> Last question is for you, Peter Paul. Yeah, so, uh, but uh, yeah, this was kind of what we should take uh, away from it. And, but yeah, the, the audience, uh, the software engineers that are listening to this, uh, what, what the most important takeaway for them. Yeah, so strengthen your long-term memory. That's definitely the biggest takeaway from the book. If there's stuff that you continuously look up, make this little deck of flashcards. The book explains how to do it and teach yourself the, the syntax or the semantic um, issues that you're always confused about because this will just, in the it takes a bit of time, but in the end, it will save you so much time if you don't have to leave the code and rebuild your mental model. If you can just grab the syntax straight away from your long-term memory, that is like really the number one way in which you can get more effective. And it sounds boring and it sounds like this is not a thing we do in programming, memorize stuff. But yeah, it's just this is also how we learn to read. Like we memorize the whole alphabet and then we memorize many words. It's just and, and look at the, the ease with which you can now read text. So yeah, memorizing a little bit. You don't have to memorize, you know, the, the entire library of everything, but just a bit yes that's uh, that is helpful yeah. wow awesome yeah, great takeaway uh, and uh, yeah <laughs> we always prepare the, the the podcast with uh, a couple of questions and we sent out the questions to felina earlier and said well i'm not sure if we can make everything within 45 <laughs> minutes and indeed there's so much to talk about and and, and really great to hear you uh, talk about it in this uh, passionate way felina and uh, really inspiring Hopefully, uh, yeah, we can uh, do a lot more with it uh, in, in the future. It, it's, uh, it really gives the push to, uh, to start thinking about it. And hopefully it, it, it does the same with the audience. So yeah, thanks for your time and uh, hope to see nice. you. Nice, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked the episode, check some of the others. Go to Spotify or iTunes, search for Tech Lab and subscribe. Leave a five-star review so others can find the podcast easier and spread the word. We like interactions, so if you have any questions or suggestions, find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or mail techlab at ball.com. Hope to meet you in our next episode. Have fun!